the preaching of the apostles and the gospel and uh, even the prophetic look at Jesus' ascension to the throne in heaven to the right hand of God and saw how important of a text it was uh, to the redemptive story from the standpoint of what is revealed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to sort of follow suit with that this evening in looking at the second psalm. Uh, The Old Testament Psalms, I think, uh, not only provide well, for those who study them and read them uh, a great deal of comfort and encouragement, they're even uh, present to us a historical uh, value in terms of looking at the, the Israelite history. Um, and of course, there is the whole avenue of praise and devotion that come through singing psalms, songs that are written by the inspiration of God. Uh, but I believe as well we recognize even as we talked about it last week that there are several of the psalms that unveil the gospel message uh, and that God uh, uh, directed his spirit to guide men such as David and others to write songs to be used in uh, the, even the process of Jewish worship that uh, were a look forward. Uh, they weren't just about that day but they were more. Uh, and I think by looking at uh, the, uh, those psalms in light of what we know about the gospel and how it was revealed, uh, they really provide an avenue for a greater appreciation, appreciation and understanding for the gospel message. And I think the second psalm certainly falls into that category. So we're going to take a couple minutes and look at the, the second psalm. Uh, Brother uh, Joe just read it for us, so we'll not necessarily read it again uh, in this context. One thing I think we might notice is that uh, in the second psalm, as opposed to, say, the first psalm, there is no superscription from the standpoint of saying that uh, the other psalms, the 110th psalm, section, where it says that uh, this psalm was a psalm of David. Some of them even have a superscription to talk about the use of the psalm uh, or even the musical notation that would have been involved in singing the psalm. Uh, that this particular psalm has none of that, and so we recognize that the author uh, of the psalm or the circumstance under which it's written is not uh, divinely revealed. Uh, Now that uh, shouldn't pose a problem for us, I think, and certainly it doesn't with this psalm, because we're able to come to understand who wrote the psalm uh, by its application. The Jews considered it from the very beginning that the second psalm was authored by David, uh, who authored more of it more than any of the other psalms. But this is certainly substantiated when we view the use of this psalm in the New Testament. We'll talk about that in just a few moments, uh, particularly in its usage in uh, Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 13. There's no reason to doubt that David wrote it, but more importantly, I think there is even less reason to doubt that this psalm is messianic, that the, that the context here points directly to Jesus Christ, uh, and that that's how the Old Testament uh, not only... Uh, the Jews would have looked at it in the time previous to the coming of Christ, but certainly the apostles did as well. So we can look at it. I also might suggest that if there is a psalm that would reflect a a perspective that's important for us today in our changing society, even in this country, this psalm certainly would qualify. Um, Because what it deals with, I think, is this divine outlook uh, on those who rebel against Uh, the message of God and particularly the Messiah of God. Uh, What does it mean for the world to reject Jesus? Uh, Well, the second psalm gives us an insight into that. Uh, What I think that provides for us a look at how uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit view that. Uh, We might have our own ideas about what God's going to do or what He has done in response to the reaction to the rebellion against Jesus um, as we would understand it. 
Uh, here the psalmist would tell us uh, precisely how God responds to that uh, and hopefully we can get that out of it. But the message of the psalm I think is then a very uh, uh, certainly a very relative uh, uh, and certainly pertinent to our own day. So it begins with a question. The psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? These two rhetorical questions, which really, I suppose, even in the Hebrew, present this aspect of a single question, set the stage that something's going on here that's perplexing, that somewhat is a mystery. Why does this happen? And I think it's not necessarily to find an answer, though we could come up with some answers maybe, and we could even look at the other, some of the other texts in the Bible and come up with some conclusions as to why uh, the world rejects Jesus or rejects God's word. But the questions are asked to set the stage, not for the answer to them specifically, but to show us that it's in the context of the raging of nations against God uh, that God reacts and that God responds. The word for rage here means to assemble tumultuously. It has two concepts. One is that something that people do together, uh, and it's something that is done uh, in, a, a, in within a, an assembly that's upset. Or that's disturbed. Some translations use the word conspire. I think the NIV uses the word conspire. Why do the nations conspire? We we have a view. We have a view of the meaning of the use of that word. There's so many times in the political scene when uh, things happen in the world, and we wonder whether or not this is a, a, an isolated event, or is there some conspiracy? Does somebody, do people get together and make this happen? Is there something beyond the event that we need to look at and see deeper, maybe to understand the whole event? And that's what conspiracy or conspire would present to us. And in a sense, that fits here, uh, that there is a hidden agenda, though it may not sometimes be so hidden, but there is a hidden agenda that's found in the rejection of the gospel message and of Jesus Christ among the nations of the world. But what the psalmist says here is that the, the nations are plotting against God. The nations are conspiring against God. The word plotting here means to sit down together and to counsel together. So we give us the idea here that this is a unified effort. Uh, maybe as we look at it over a period of time, or maybe we look at it within terms of more than one nation or more than one type of people that are involved in this, it's a unified effort with Satan at the helm to overcome the purposes of God. Well, what are they plotting? Uh, what, uh, what is it that they are conspiring to do in this? Uh, well, it says here that they are taking counsel against God and His anointed. And so this gives us the picture. The people, the nations of the world, and that's what the idea of nation there has. Sometimes, most often in the Old Testament, the terms nations has to do with Gentile nations, or in more in context, it's those who are the enemies of God or stand against God. I believe that's the way that it's used here. But the people then have a common enemy. And that's God and his Messiah. So they plot against God and against the anointed one. And the word there in the, in the Hebrew language is Mashiach, which is the word from which we get the word Messiah uh, in the Greek translation, uh, or Christos as it is in the Greek. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So the psalmist would put it in the context of God's people, the Jews, who are expecting one to come, their Messiah, and the Father who would send him, or the God that would send him, that the nations of the world conspire or they work or they plot against his purposes to oppose him in every way. Now, what David is, I think, indicating in these opening rhetorical questions is that he tells us right up front, before he ever gets into the, the, the rest of the song, he tells us up front that what they're doing is a vain thing. Uh, it's to no use. 
The word vain there means something that is empty or worthless. It's a, in the original language, it is a, it is a single word, um, a very short single word, that simply means uh, that which comes to no good or that which has no fruit. So that's what the psalmist would tell us, is that there are those who oppose God and those who rise up against God, but it does them no good. They oppose God and they scheme and they put their heads together. And maybe it's the best consensus that they could come up with. You know, there's this, there's this perspective we have as human beings that if we get together and put our heads together, we can solve any problem, we can do anything. You know, if we just put our minds to it, we can accomplish anything we want to accomplish, we can achieve what we want to achieve. When it comes to God, you see, that's certainly not true. Men have constantly put their minds together and conspired against the purposes of God, and it has always been a vain thing. Well, what is it that they that, that characterizes this plotting against, or maybe more to the question, why would they plot against Jesus and, and against God? Well, it says here that these nations are raging against the authority of God and against His Messiah because they do not want to submit to Him. That they they plot against them so that they might cast away their, their, their cords from us, the there being the cords of the Messiah and the, the Anointed One and God Himself. So they don't want to be bound by Him. They don't want to be bound to Him. They don't want Him telling him, telling them what to do. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? And certainly it's, it's, it's pretty applicable and common for people, particularly maybe in our own society, to, to sort of bristle, uh, bristle to the idea that somebody could tell them what to do. And sometimes the very sense that uh, God's going to, that anyone is going to tell them how to live their life, you see, uh, puts them on the defensive and maybe even pushes them to the point where they would rebel against authority. So what this conspiring and this plotting together by the nations of God, by the nations of the world against God, is really a resistance movement. It is a resistance movement against the authority of God. It is a rebellion. And I think it pretty well typifies, this description pretty well typifies this dichotomy that the scriptures present between God and the ways of Satan, or what sometimes is meant by the word world, that you're not to love the world nor the things in the world, that those things are not in any way congruous with what God is doing, that there are the things of God and then there are the things of the world. Not talking about the physical planet, he's saying that there is a force that is evil in its nature that, desi- that does not desire to be submissive to God. Uh, and sometimes that is borne out even in nations themselves. Uh, so when God put his children into the, in the land of Canaan, uh, there were nations there who stood in the way. Not any nations, but idolatrous, rebellious nations that God would have to get out of the way for his people to possess that and even put them to that very task. But we see that over and over again in the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and others who stood up and certainly we see it in the New Testament period in terms of uh, the, uh, the Roman government. But there is a, a New Testament application of this, and I want us to take a minute and look at this uh, in Acts chapter 4. As I mentioned, we have the ability sometimes to come to the, what we recognize as the absolutely correct interpretation of an Old Testament passage when we come across it in the New Testament and there the, the inspired writers, the apostles, are giving us an explanation or making an application of that passage. 
And these words of the, of the second psalm are quoted by the early disciples in Acts chapter 4. And you remember the scene here that Peter and John were put in prison for preaching about the resurrection. They had to stand before the Sanhedrin. They were placed in the middle and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Uh, and they told them, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't preach anymore about the resurrection. And they make that statement particularly in the, in the, uh, in the first encounter, we must obey God rather than men. And they gather disciples together then after, when they were, after they appear before the Sanhedrin, uh, they are released. And going back into the city, they gather disciples together and they rehearse before the disciples what had happened to them uh, and how they'd been put in prison and how these things had transpired and they had stood before and made uh, the declaration of the gospel even for the rulers. And beginning in verse 24, the disciples then break out in prayer. I find that fascinating that... When they're telling the story about what's happened to them, the first thing the disciples uh, think to do here is to pray to God. Uh, it's not to congratulate Peter and John. It's not to run off and hide somewhere uh, or figure out how they can lock the doors and secure themselves. Uh, the first thing they do is they pray to God. And then in verse 25, they quote the second psalm. This passage comes to mind. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now what that tells us is that these disciples were familiar with the second psalm. So when this event came up and they recognized that their leaders had been taken before the council and before uh, the, these, these authorities, that that's precisely a fulfillment of Acts chapter 2. I mean Psalm, uh, psalm uh, 2. And so they say, this is what's happening. For truly, you see, these things have taken place. And then, how did they apply it? In other words, if they were making the connection that this was a fulfillment of the second psalm, that nations were raging and plotting against the anointed. How did they make the connection? Well, verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose to do to determine before to be done. Now, a couple things stand out to me here, and that is that they specifically mention who these people are who represent the nations that rage against them. They say it's Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles. Now we know that's exactly what happened, isn't it? They're, they're pretty precise about that. Pontius Pilate's the Roman procurator who put Jesus on the cross. And certainly we recognize that the Gentiles were involved in that because the Romans were the ones who actually put that together. And Herod was even involved in the trial of Jesus. But then he goes on to say in this, in verse 27, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now, in the Old Testament, the term nations almost always, as I mentioned, referred to the Gentiles. And so you look at the psalm and what you would, what you would expect to find is that the Gentiles are rising up against God's, against God's people and against the Messiah to, to oppose Him. But when the disciples interpret this, rightfully interpret the fulfillment of the second psalm, they recognize that the people of Israel are a part of that conspiracy. It's not just the Gentiles and the heathens. It's not just the unbelievers who are involved in opposing God and His Messiah. It's also the nation of Israel that's involved in this. God's own people. The ones who are expecting the Messiah. Who've been given, you see, an image of what to expect in the personage of the Messiah. The prophecies that were to lead them to the expectation of their Messiah. These very ones were the ones who at this time were plotting against them who put Jesus on the cross. And now we're responsible with incarcerating the apostles themselves. They stood before the Sanhedrin and they were turned over to the Gentiles to be put in prison 
and no, no doubt was, a prison that was officiated by the temple police. Well, we, we see all that to recognize that that's a New Testament application of an Old Testament psalm. But the psalmist goes further than just telling us that this is what's going to happen, as we see it happen in the book of Acts. How did God respond? How did God react to the fact that even his own people would stand against him and oppose him and his Messiah, and that the nations would rage against the Messiah? Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God will laugh at their plans. Now the word laugh here is not the kind of laughter you get when you tell a funny joke. The word laugh here is this aspect of incredulity. That it's God saying, in a sense, God saying, you got to be kidding me. You really think that's going to work? You really think this is the thing you ought to do? Have you ever been in a position where you'd see somebody do something and think, wait a minute, well, that doesn't make any sense. you got to be kidding me. That's really what you're going to do? And I think that's what is presented here. How does God react to men who plot against Him? Well, who do you think you are? You think that's going to really matter to me? Whether or not you oppose me in this? And in a sense, the tables are turned. When people decide that it's time for them to mock God, God in us flips it on its ends and He mocks them, so to speak. He mocks against their arrogance. And against, you see, their plans. And it well it tells us in the text that God becomes angry, that He speaks to them in His displeasure. He's not talking to them in some, you see, amiable way from the standpoint of what's going on. He will express His anger to them in this regard. It reminds me of Jesus' parable in the 21st chapter of Matthew, uh, near the end of His ministry, when He speaks in Jerusalem about the, vine dre- the, the, vi- the vineyard owner, the, the vine dresser sometimes He's called, who has put his vineyard into the care of the stewardship of servants and then later on he sends his servants he sends servants back to get the harvest to get what was owed to him about what was there in that heart and that was taken care of in that vineyard and those who are in charge of the vineyard kill all the servants that come so he finally says well you know I see that's happening but surely they'll respect my son he's the very essence of my authority and my ownership is the son so he sends his son and they kill the son and you see, when we read that story, we think, that's crazy. Why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. They would kill the son. Because what's he going to do about that? Well, Jesus even asked that question in the parable. What will he do to these servants? Well, he'll destroy them. He will take the vineyard away from them. And so that's what the psalmist is saying. When nations rise up against God and His money and His plans, what will He do? He will distress them in His deep displeasure. He will bring judgment upon those who are His enemies. He will not let this go on. But then He says, in, in connection with this, not only will He, you see, laugh at those who plot against Him and punish them for their rebellion, but He says, I have set my king on my holy hill. The reaction to the Father is, notice the past tense here, I have already set my king on my holy hill. So did they stop him? Did they keep it from happening? All the plotting and scheming that God has against that man has against the uh, against God's plans to set a Messiah on a throne and rule over His people. Any of that work? God puts it. The Thomas puts it in the past tense. It's already a done deal. There's nothing you can do about it. I have set my king on my holy hill. God doesn't care what we think. Or how we will feel as we oppose it. 
Jesus is on the throne. And whether we misunderstand that, whether we don't fully agree with that, whether we'd like to have more freedom over our own lives and not submit to a king, doesn't change the fact that Jesus is on His throne and that God presents His plans. So the view of God for Jesus is that Jesus is the one He has chosen. Jesus is the only one He has chosen. And if anyone's going to please God, it will come through their, their acceptance of the Messiah whom He has chosen, His anointed one. Even if it means all the rest of the world rages against Him and all the rest of the world opposes Him. We'll get to that at the end of the psalm. But there's another view here. We see the view of, of how the Father reacts and when the nations rage against him, there's also tells us in the seventh verse how the anointed himself would react because the nations rage against not only God, but they also rage against the anointed. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today have I begotten you. And I believe what's happening here is the psalmist is changing, uh, is changing to, uh, to reflect here this aspect of the conversation between the Father and the Son or the Father and the Messiah. And that he's telling us the perspective of the anointed one, the Messiah, based on what the Father has told him. So he counts the reaction of the anointed one who's Jesus by telling us what the Father said to him. Well, what did the Father say to him? He says, I have a decree for you to proclaim. And here's what the Lord said to his anointed, You are my son, today have I begotten you. And so the Father tells the anointed one, the one who is to come, the Messiah, You are my son, and I have anointed you because I have begotten you. And he says, Today I have begotten you. Now, don't overlook that word today because that every place we find this particular verse accounted to us in terms of this explanation in the New Testament, the term today there is in reference or it's an important part of understanding what's being talked about. When was Jesus begotten by the Father? When did the Father say, Today I have begotten you? The word begotten there means to, born, to be born or to bring to birth or to have a child. You are my son. Today you have been born. Well, when was that? Was it when Jesus was physically born into this world? Is that when Jesus was begotten of the Father? Well, certainly there was a celebration at the Incarnation when Jesus became flesh. The angels sang praises to God and there was a great celebration of what took place. But we recognize that wasn't the beginning of Jesus, was it? John 1.1 tells us that Jesus was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Jesus had a pre-birth existence before He ever became human. He existed. And the Messiah Himself is depicted even in Old Testament language as being an eternal character. Again, the New Testament application is essential to understanding this particular psalm. It's the messianic prediction and connection that makes, makes this make sense to us. There are a few times in the New Testament where we read the Father saying to Jesus, You are my Son. At His baptism, the Father spoke from heaven, You are my Son, in whom I am well pleased. At His transfiguration, He spoke to Him again and said, You are my Son. Hear ye Him, even as He spoke in the presence of Peter and John who were there. There, but there are three places in the Scriptures where we see the New Testament writers adding to this, Today have I begotten you. That there is this aspect of the begotten sense. One is in Acts chapter 13, and it begins it become, becomes a New Testament application of the second psalm. 
God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today have I begotten you. Now Paul's preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, and he's recounting Jewish history. He talks about the Exodus, and he talks about God bringing up prophets. And certainly, he makes mention here that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that He is the one who is to come. Notice that when he presents the Old Testament Accreditation of Jesus, of who Jesus is, that he goes directly to the second psalm and he quotes this verse. God has fulfilled this for his children in that he has said, Today have I begotten you. And he says it in relationship to raising up Jesus. That that's, that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the fulfillment of the second psalm, of these words in the second psalm. So when was Jesus begotten of the Father? When was it declared that Jesus was the Son of God and that He was begotten of the Father? Paul would say in Acts chapter 13 that it was the day of the resurrection that was in view. When he said, today have I begotten. Not His baptism, nor His incarnation. But when He came forth out of the grave, He was declared to be the Son. Now, that's substantiated as well in Hebrews chapter 1. Context is a little different, but it all points in the same direction. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, talking about the superiority of Jesus over the angels, the writer says, To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, you are my son today have I begotten you? Now, again, the context is not Jesus' birth. It's the blessing of God that provides the time in which He purged us from our sins. You go back a few verses in verse 3 and 4, and you recognize that's, what's, that's what he's talking about. To substantiate Jesus' superiority is the fact that He's the one who purged our sins and is now at the right hand of God. No angel did that. Jesus did that. And the writer of Hebrews would say, that shows that He is the one who's begotten of God. Later on in the fifth chapter of Hebrews, again, the, the, the second psalm is quoted. And here the context is the work of Jesus as our high priest. That He is our high priest. Well, how is that presented to us in the Old Testament? Well, one place is... That he is begotten again. Today have I begotten you as my son. So Jesus is the high priest. In the context there, again, is how that came about. It wasn't through his incarnation or through his baptism. It was rather at his death and resurrection and his ascension back to God, as the evidence in verses 7 through 10 there, that that's what the writer of Hebrews is discussing. That Jesus is the one you see who is our high priest and therefore has fulfilled the passage. In the second psalm, that you are my son. So all of that put together, at least as I recognize it here, is that that's the, that's the implications of the psalm from the standpoint of today have I begotten you. That the event that was being looked forward to, that would be a reaction to the nations raging against the Messiah, is when the tomb would open up and Jesus would come out. That the anointed one speaking here says... I have no problem with the opposition that I'm facing because you have said that I will be begotten of you. Today have I begotten, been begotten of you. Now in verses 8 and 9 then, there is this uh, further on as we read on, there's the describe what the Father says to the anointed. Not only does the Father say, you are my son today, today have I begotten you, but the Father looks forward as he speaks to the Son and says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Despite the plotting of men and the resistance to the authority of the Messiah who is to come, the Father promises the Son absolute victory. He will defeat all of his enemies. He will possess the nations. He will possess all the world as his inheritance. Now that 
that victory that the anointed will win, that the Father has promised unto him, that I believe is the basis of the anointed's confidence in the face of great, such great opposition, is not some military objective that's going to be take place when uh, this nation meets this nation on some physical plane in, in Palestine. It's not the physical battle of Armageddon that will have tanks and airplanes. It's not a military objective at all. That this particular battle you see is the victory that's gained how? When will, what will be the, the, the deciding, and you see an absolutely decisive perspective of Jesus' victory? Again, when the tomb opens up and he's made alive again. That it's a spiritual victory that's gained through his own resurrection, through the building of his church and his kingdom. And that plays into Acts chapter 4. That's why the disciples in Acts chapter 4 could understand that this is what's going on here. That the nations are raging. Why are they raging? They quote from the passage to bring to fold not only the aspect that this is an opposition to the, to the God and the Messiah, but later on in the psalm to recognize that it's already set in stone that the Messiah is going to win this victory. And that he's going to be victorious over his enemies. Not just some of his enemies, but he's going to be victorious over all of his enemies. How and why? Because he's willing to suffer and when he resurrects from the dead. Now in Matthew chapter 4, think about it in the context of this. Does this help us understand Matthew chapter 4? Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes and tempts Jesus while he's in the wilderness. And one of those temptations was to take Jesus up on, on, the, on the pinnacle of the temple and, and look down on our high mountain and look down and see all the kingdoms of the earth. And we spend all our time trying to figure out how Jesus could see all the kingdoms of the earth at one time. And sometimes we fail to see what the real impetus of this particular, that particular temptation is in the whole scheme of things. That why was this a temptation to Jesus? Because the, the Father had already promised Jesus a victory. That if he had been faithful to him, that all the world will bow down to him and will win this great victory. The, the, the nations of the earth will be his inheritance if he will follow through. Follow through with what? Follow through with the suffering. So Satan comes along and says, ah, no, you don't have to suffer. Just bow down to me. I'll give these things to you. You, see, you don't have to suffer. He, get, he, he shows Jesus a way out if you just give in to me. But what that would mean is Jesus would fail to believe in the promise of the Father. He would fail to put his reliance on the promise of the Father if he believed in Satan. Does that sound like my temptation and your temptation too? That every time Satan rears his head against us, it's the idea of, okay, I know this is what God said, but you don't have to believe him. Trust in me. And that's the whole essence of temptation. And certainly it wasn't Jesus' life. But real quickly as we end here, what does the Spirit demand as we look further into this particular psalm? So far in this psalm, we viewed the work of Jesus, the anointed, from three perspectives. One, the world, in verses 1 through 3, the world would rage against it, plot against it. In verses 4 through 6, the Father would laugh at the world and set him up as king in face of their rebellion. And then verses 7 through 9, the anointed one himself reacts by speaking the words of the Father to him. He puts his trust in the words, you are my beloved son, today have I begotten you. And he enunciates the victory. So we see that as the whole story. But what follows at the end of the psalm is more to date, so to speak. It becomes more an understanding of how we are to react to this whole scenario. What follows is a call for the nations and the kings of the earth to pay attention, to stop raging, and to repent. What should happen when we recognize that God's being opposed and that God's going to win the victory anyway? And that God's made promises that are, that are going to be fulfilled. Would, would, does it change you see which side you're on if you know who wins? And so he says in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. So what's the Spirit saying? And I think you could divide that into you. You have the Father, you have the Anointed One, the Son, and now you have the Spirit speaking the warning that would come. What's He saying? That if the Anointed One truly is victorious in this, and there is a resurrection from the dead, then you do not want to oppose it. And so be warned. Do the smart thing. And that is, serve the Anointed with fear. Bow down to Him, you see and serve Him with trembling. It's interesting the way those things fit together, isn't it? That you, you are to be wise and to be warned. You can't be warned and take heed to warnings unless you are wise. And if you're truly wise, you will take, take attention to warnings. But if you serve the Lord, you'll do it with fear. It's the aspect of respect, the idea of respect. Because He is King, because He is now at the right end of God, because God set Him on His holy hill... The reality of it, you must serve Him, but you must serve it with all recognition of who He is. You don't serve Him to serve yourself. You serve Him out of fear. And you rejoice in the victory, but you rejoice with great trembling. Because you realize without Him there would be no victory. And then He says, you kiss the Son. In the New Testament, one of the Greek words for worship is the Greek word proskuneo. And the root word for that, one of the root words of that is the word kodea, which means to kiss. And then pros, which is a proposition that means toward. So the term proskuneo in the original language, which is translated worship in the New Testament, literally means to kiss towards. And I think that very well might play into the meaning of these words. It carries the idea of someone who's in submission, kissing the hand of someone who is over them, who rules over them. And so what the psalmist would say, rather than oppose the Son, rather than stand against Him and plot against Him, what you really need to do is get down on your knees and you need to kiss His hand. You need to worship Him. You see the messianic implications of that? We don't worship anybody but God, right? So if He's saying, kiss the Son worship the Son, then here we are all the way back in the Old Testament where Jesus ever comes and is proclaiming to us that Jesus is divine, that the Messiah will truly be the Son of the Father. But that's what the second psalm is telling us to do. It's telling us to fall down and worship before God, seeing the story from the beginning to the end, understanding that even though there is an opposition, God is not in any way thwarted by what they do. His plans don't change. He's already set His king on the hill. He's won the victory. And Jesus has come out of the grave. If the king is on His throne, if He has risen from the dead, then the rebellion has failed. And their judgment is sealed. Now whose side do you want to be on in the context of that? Because His inheritance is the nations of the world. All of them. No one is excluded from the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Since the, since the Son has risen from the dead, then their history, all of human history, is racing towards a single event. And that is the judgment of those who rail against and who oppose God. You think about that in terms of the resurrection. What's the resurrection to us mean? Well, it's the center of our faith. It means Jesus is God. It means that He, that he overcame death. It plays into the aspect, you see, that we uh, don't have to fear our own death because Jesus is risen from the dead. It's even, you see, symbolized in our own baptism and immersion in water. But there's another element about resurrection we dare not miss, and that is because Jesus had been risen from the dead, what it means is there's something that will absolutely, without any doubt, happen. And that is God will judge this world. 
The resurrection means that this world is coming to an end and God will judge every evil upon it. And that's what the second psalm is saying. Is that the nations rage, but Jesus risen from the dead. This day I have begotten you. This day you've risen from the dead is today. And so, that's what Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, isn't it? When he stood before a group of individuals who did not know about messianic promises or Jewish traditions or things that had come from the Old Testament, he told them that this God you serve unknowingly is the God that created all the worlds and in we live and move and have our very being. But then he ended that sermon in Athens by saying in Acts chapter 17, Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained, the one He has anointed. And he has given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. You see, that's the, that's the second psalm put in the Old New Testament preaching right there by Acts, by Paul in, in Athens. That he was bringing an Old Testament passage written to the Jews by David centuries before and telling them this is the assurance that you need to bow down and kiss the Son today because he's coming in judgment. I think these things, at least to me, are, are, are fascinating. Not only fascinating, but it, they are compelling as well. The psalmist ends the song by saying, Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Taking refuge in God. Because there's coming a day when you're going to need some refuge. You're going to need to hide someplace. The only place you can successfully hide against the anger and the judgment of God is in the blood of Jesus Christ. So we want you to come, if you're not a Christian, and be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ because God's purposes will not be thwarted. He has ordained the Messiah who has appeared on this earth, who gave his life for the sins of the world, and he resurrected from the dead. And I'm absolutely sure that that's happened. And I'm also absolutely sure that there's coming a day when God will judge the world. And the only thing that I need to sustain myself in that great judgment is the blood of Jesus. Will you respond to that? Be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Why we stand and sing?